The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for the news, advice, information, and most important, question answering that you need to get yourself on the path to financial independence through real estate investing or get further along that path or whatever your particular goals for the next months, weeks, months, and years might be. We are always here on Real Life Real Estate Investing looking for ideas for topics and programs that you would like to know more about. You can submit an idea for a topic or for a speaker by going to askvina.com, clicking the button that says Ask Vina a question and sending it that way. Or you can join us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash real life real estate radio. Uh, you can post it up there as well. And as always, we appreciate the input of all of our listeners on things that you need to know more about, whether it be buying, selling, renting, financing, legal processes, whatever you'd like to hear about, askvina.com or facebook.com slash real life real estate. Uh, we're also taking your calls in the studio as always at 877-772-9658 or any questions that you have via email, again, by going to askvina.com. And while you're there at askvina.com, be sure to click the add me to your mailing list button and uh, make sure you, that you are getting the special reports and articles that we are sending out each and every week by and about our guests. If you missed the one today, man, you missed a really excellent article on how to know what to pay for a property. So don't miss them in the future. Real Life Real Estate Investing's weekly e-letter is a service to our listeners and, of course, uh, is at absolutely no charge. Again, that's askvina.com. Um, today, we are talking about uh, a, a topic that, that many people are super interested in and super confused about, which is uh, dealing with bank-owned properties from the point of view of how do you get them, how do you make offers on them, and then what do you do with them once you have gotten them. My guest today is a um, well-known name from... Uh, gosh, Amazon.com stages all over the uh, United States and his company Realty Join, Mr. Andy Heller, who started out in real estate investing with his partner uh, as a part-timer, as many of us do, and developed a system that Forbes magazine called one of the best systems for investing in real estate. 
in the United States. Joining us from his home near Atlanta is Andy Heller. Andy, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Dina, it's always a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> and it's always a pleasure to have you, Andy. Now, we only have, like... By the time you do the weather and the traffic breaks and all that sort of stuff, we've got like 48 minutes together here, and you've got days and days and days and days worth of stuff you could say to people. So I want I, I just want to start by by giving folks an, an overview of, of the complete process that you use for investing, starting with the kinds of properties and ending with the exit strategy. And then we're going to go back and dig into the part that people seem to get very confused about, which is the bank-owned property. So what is the whole, you know, buy low, sell high thing that you, that you do? <laughs> okay, I'll give it to you in about three or four minutes, and that will give us a nice uh, basis for a good conversation, Vina. But my advice would be to skip the weather. This is more important. So, <laughs> okay. So um, basically, everybody, there's really three stages to the foreclosure process. There's was pre-foreclosure, that's uh, before... The, uh, when, when somebody gets behind their mortgage, when they miss their first payment leading up to the foreclosure sale, that stage is called pre-foreclosure. Then the second stage is the foreclosure sale. And the third stage is post-foreclosure, REO. So many people, when they hear about buying foreclosures, they think about buying properties in pre-foreclosure. And we started off trying to do that. We found it was really difficult. And we also found that we always had to visit with families who were, were behind in their lives, were falling apart. And that was really difficult for us to, to deal with. Now, but in doing this, Vina, we subscribe to these uh, papers and services, and you can get this now very easily, very cheap online, um, that compiled these lists of foreclosures throughout Georgia. You have them all over the country. And these uh, uh, this data, these sheets, these, these reports, we call them, um, they were a wealth of information. They also included the name of the bank. So, after I had a really bad experience trying to visit a family in a downward spiral in pre-foreclosure, I found a property that looked interesting, and I called. I didn't feel like actually going to visit with the homeowner. I spoke to her on the phone, and a few days after after the foreclosure sale, I just called the bank. It was a smaller bank in Atlanta, and I knew that most properties take at least two or three months before the bank actually lists it, and. I called the bank right after the sale, and within seven days, you know, I purchased my first property. No emotion. It was a business transaction. And I called my real estate partner, Scott. I said, Scott, what are we doing? This is the way to buy. It's so easy. It's, um, there's no emotion involved at all. And uh, why don't we just keep doing it? And, you know, after the foreclosure sale, you've got basically two or three months before property pops up on MLS. So we became the specialist in buying properties in those two or three month period. Now, for this to work, you've got to identify these properties in pre-foreclosure using these lists so that you can call the bank right after the sale. And that became our business model. So we would approach the smaller banks right after the sale. If it was a larger bank, like Bank of America, um, a Deutsche Bank, Chase Manhattan, Wells Fargo, you don't have any chance to call the bank directly, but these banks are so so systematic. We learned that uh, month in, month out, these larger banks tended to use the same agents for their REOs. We call them REO agents. So when we saw a larger bank, we just basically called the REO agents and did the same thing. And the best thing about 
the way we buy is once you have the contact, you can buy from them over and over again. And as I've said in my seminars, in my books and everything, show me any other way to acquire property below market where you can buy a second, a fifth, or a 20th property from the same contact other than buying from banks. That's why we focus on this way to buy because it's simply very easy. The type of properties we like to buy, Vina, are middle-income properties. Now, middle-income differs in all communities around the country. Middle-income in California, parts of California are very different than middle-income in Ohio or, or Atlanta. But typically, middle-income is a range from lower middle-income to upper middle-income, generally from between 75K and 450. We like the properties right in the middle. So we purchase them and we put them on the market as a for sale or lease option. We flipped plenty of properties. The last property we, we bought a few months ago, we flipped it. Um, and it was great because the lease option ad drew in a lot of traffic. So the person who wanted to buy looked around like, oh boy, I better offer more money because there's a lot of competition. So even when we don't lease option, Vina, the strategy really helps us. But when we do lease option, we use a very different type of a structure. It's a three-year lease option. You know our, our, our formula. We call it Rent Smart, where we offer very fair, very reasonable terms. And we found there's a relationship between having good terms under your lease option and getting a good tenant. And when you're able to get a good tenant, you have less turnover, they take care of the properties, and you make more money. Some of them buy in the future, and when they buy, there's no real estate commission. There's no negotiation. It's a simple, seamless transaction. Actually, the price was negotiated months, sometimes even years, in the past. That, is, in about four minutes, is my model. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, and now that we have, now that we understand the complete picture, <laughs> we're going to go back and. <laughs> And 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 sort of look at the front end of this, uh, yeah. Simply again because that's what we have time to to do a little bit. Before we do that, we're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to invite listeners to uh, come to us with any questions that you have about the the whole buy low, rent fair, sell high model, uh, but particularly about the dealing with the banks part. You can give us a call at eight seven 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 two nine six five eight, or you can send us an email by going to askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Andy Heller. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that not only is Andy going to be one of the featured speakers at the 2013 OREA conference here in the Cincinnati area, he's also making an appearance in Columbus, Ohio on September the 3rd and uh, back again a couple of weeks later to do an all-day uh, you can get more information about that at centralohiorea.com. That's centralohiorea.com. And uh, certainly if you're up in the Columbus area, you might want to stop by and check that out. Or you can uh, check him out in November in Cincinnati. Uh, we'll be making some um, special offers to Real Life Real Estate listeners uh, come a couple of weeks from now, not next Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. Uh, in regards to OREA, so be sure to put it on your calendar now and wait to see how you can both support Real Life Real Estate here on public radio and at the same time spend the most awesome four days of your entire life learning all about real estate. Um, okay, so uh, Andy, the um, the front end of your whole uh, your whole investment strategy here involves dealing with institutions that... Um, some people 
find it to be a difficult process to deal with. <laughs> I'm, Okay. I am. I am. I am trying to. I'm trying to. Uh, you know, not 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 speak on the air as as we might be speaking to each other <laughs> about banks. Okay. Um, and particularly, particularly right now, the um, the the feeling is that that bank owned inventory is down, that there's less of it, that we're in competition with hedge funds who have zillions of dollars for it. Uh, is is this is this is this whole thing starting with the buying the bank owned properties something that's going to work in a market like right now where the inventory might be a little bit squeezed okay that's a really good question that's a question i do get in my seminars today so let me just go ahead and be, give you as simple an answer as i can and then i also want to go to talk about the danger of trying to predict the future and look at what's happening right now in today's real estate market so when i started buying bank owned property vena the percentage of bank-owned property in the retail market was 1% to 1.5%, and that was 23 years ago. Last year, it was um, 11%. The year before, it was 14 So last year, it was 800% higher than the percentage that where I began to build this business. So it doesn't matter what the percentage of REOs are in the market, everybody because the number of investors always adjust for the number of REOs that are out there or whatever method you might be trying to invest. It's always going to be a good method to buy property because there's always going to be banks in this country. Um, and um, I'm a great example. Um, I just bought a property from a, uh, a bank I'd never bought from just a few months ago. I got about a 30% discount. So you absolutely can do it. You can do it in any market as long as you know how to approach the banks and that's one of the things I teach. You have to know when to make your phone call, what to say on the phone. And um, even when I have seasoned investors in my seminars, Vina, it's really interesting. We walk through the script that we use when we call the banks. And sometimes I have a, an investor or two president who's tried to call, and they listen to what I recommend that they say. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I understand now why, why it didn't work for me. So it, any good... Uh, any good, sensible real estate investment strategy works in any market. It just so happens we're coming out of a market, everybody, where the numbers of REOs were absolutely berserk. Okay, so it's gone from berserk to still kind of crazy. All right, and again, it's 800% higher than the numbers when I started. But you do want to look at today's market, understand there's some very, very um, artificial things that are going on right now that are not going to go on in the for, for much longer or in the foreseeable future. They're not long-term. You have um, the Fed pumping all this money into mortgage-backed securities. You mentioned, Vina, that hedge funds have been buying REOs. Um, well, property values are creeping up now, and guess what? Hedge funds are going to stop. They've already begun to stop buying REOs because they're no longer the type of buy that they're looking for. you got a lot of investors from overseas that are, stop, are slow in their purchases of American real estate, okay? Um, you have interest rates creeping up, and you still have over 3 million people more than 90 days behind in their mortgages. So that's called the shadow inventory. These are properties that are going to eventually, most of them, will become in REOs in the future. So a lot of things are going on today that are simply not sustainable on a long-term basis. So... I'm not predicting another absolute crash, but I'm saying that no matter what happens in the real estate market, 
This is a great way to buy. It's a sensible way to buy. As long as there are banks in this country, there will be bank-owned properties to buy. Mm-hmm. Very good. And um, starting to get in some questions here. Um, and you know what? This is a long one. I am going to have to like read it to myself before I read it to you. <laughs> so I so give, give me a short one while you read the long one. <laughs> I know, right? Um, okay. So uh, the thing is, Andy, for, for a lot of people, another... So, you know what all of the hangups that investors have about bank-owned properties are. They require high-dollar earnest money. They require proof of funds or pre-approval. Um, a lot of wholesalers are hesitant to approach them because the contracts are non-assignable. And yet you're buying them and holding on to them. So what are you doing? Are you going to, are you going to the same bank and getting money? Are you going to a different bank and getting money? Are you paying cash? How, how are you acquiring these properties to start with? Well, I want to answer this in two ways. There's what I'm doing and what most of my students are doing, because it, it's, it's also kind of unfair to look at what I'm doing, because I'm the product of doing this for many years, and I've had success. So I'm able to buy today with cash. Uh, but uh, when I started Dina, and for our first 12 years, every single purchase I ever made was contingent upon us getting an investor loan. But your question was awesome because it, it touched on a very big misconception or misunderstanding about buying bank-owned properties. The first is that you need to have a ton of money. You don't. In fact, when you buy from a bank, you, do, you need exactly what you need when you're buying property any other way. You need to show the bank that you can transact. That's it. Proof of funds. Proof of, proof of being able to transact either with your money, with a loan, with private money source, or with any other way that you're going to finance the property. So you're buying property via a short sale, you're buying property from Joe Blow on the street, on a Craigslist, whatever method you're finding properties, when you go to make your offer, you're going to have to at some point demonstrate that you can close. So it's no different when you buy from King's. No different at all. And um, actually, I've done this for years. I haven't had to put up a ton of earnest money. Um, you just need to show that you can transact. And a lot of my students, you know, they use private money. money. They have a finance partner. Um, some of them have somebody that, that fronts, fronts the cash. Some, some of them qualify for an investor loan because they still have their day job. So these are, this is the way that my students are buying today and buying from banks. You touched on also something very interesting, that many wholesalers don't buy from banks because of the assignment cost. Well, I don't think we have enough time today to go into how to deal with that, but I will spend about 30 minutes in the full-day workshop in Columbus specifically on how wholesalers need to deal and address the assignment clause. But I'll make a big-picture point here. If you are a wholesaler, not only can you buy from banks, but you have to buy from banks. Because think about it. Your business model is based on doing a lot of transactions. You're not buying one property and hoping to make $50,000 a month from that property. No, you're buying seven or eight properties a month and hoping to make five, ten thousand $10,000 per property. It's a transaction-oriented business model. So wholesalers, think about it. You need to be buying from banks because they're the only seller of properties who can sell you not one property but 10, 20, or 30. It's the perfect source for your business model. The challenge is to get around the assignment clause, and I'll be teaching this in the workshop. 
Very good. Um, now, I, I finally, I finally got my way through this question. <laughs> that was <laughs> that. Well, wait, wait, wait till you hear it. You'll, <laughs> you'll understand why it was. Uh, it, it took a little translating here. Um, this is okay. from Steve in Raleigh, and mm-hmm. he's his question is about buying bank-owned properties using a self-directed IRA. Okay. Which is uh, yeah, an interesting strategy, and and we we do by the way for those of you who uh, are listening and are like what the self what's a self directed IRA? How could I possibly buy real estate in my self directed IRA? Go to our podcast. If you go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash real life real estate, up at the top there is a link to our podcast, and you will find a show from just a few weeks ago where John Bowen from Equity Trust Company talked about buying real estate in your IRA. But this this is specifically about uh, uh, REOs in an IRA. And his first question, Andy, is about uh, timing considerations, because uh, I don't know if you personally have ever bought a, a, a property in your IRA. I'm sure many of your students have. But uh, sometimes, like, when you need to order the earnest money check, it might take a little while to do that. And his question is, does that adversely, adversely affect your chances of getting the deal if it's a bank-owned property? Okay, that's a really good question. I'm going to give you a very simple answer. Don't do anything in the buying process that might overcomplicate what is really a simple procedure. Um, if you're if you have a, a nice IRA, okay, then let's hope that you have two, three, or four, or five thousand dollars in cash outside the IRA. Don't use your IRA for the earnest money. Use separate money for your earnest money, so you won't have a timing issue. That's my simple answer. Okay, and uh, his next question is um, paying for the repairs and getting the property ready. Uh, that money does have to come out of the IRA for absolute certain. And uh, his question is, should I just contract the whole thing out to a trusted third party? And I can tell you, see, the answer to that is you have to. <laughs> if you think you're going to do a deal yeah, on your yeah. IRA and and go do some work yourself, or uh, the the thinking with IRAs, with self directed IRAs, is getting by. And when I say thinking, I mean by the IRS and people who watch the IRS is getting more and more conservative, and it's moving mm-hmm. it's moving toward someone else should be doing everything on the deals that are in your IRA. You should be providing no services. Uh, at all, and then his third question is: Do you know anyone, Andy, who has invested in IRA and REOs in their IRAs, and are they happy investing that way? Well, I have lots of students, Steve, who who uh, and specifically um, buy from their IRAs, and I I think they're probably happy as long as they make good purchases. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's it, it, it's a great way to buy a property and. The fact that you're buying from a bank doesn't really in any way change the fact that you're using your IRA doesn't make it any less or any more appealing, except in, as long as you're getting a good deal on the, on the purchase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Steve has a Steve has a bonus question. Steve must be a very long-time listener, because his bonus question uh-huh. is, is Mr. Drew still basking in the reflected glory of being Venus' business partner? I haven't heard him guest host in a while. Steve maybe doesn't remember the show way back when like five, six years ago, where Mr. Drew suggested on the air that it was cheaper to assassinate a non-paying tenant than to evict them, and that was the last time he guest-hosted. So uh, thank, you for your, thank you for your question, Steve. And uh, if you have a question for Andy, uh, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send us an email by going to askvina.com. 
Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Andy Heller. He is uh, going to be one of the speakers at the 2013 OREA conference here in Cincinnati. He's also making an appearance uh, early next month in just a couple of weeks in Columbus. And we're talking today about his, uh, his strategy of buying properties from banks and then selling them on lease option, meaning he rents them for a while and then the folks buy them. And it's a whole, I mean, you know, people say you should have a cookie cutter. Andy has a cookie cutter. <laughs> and he's had a cookie cutter for years and years and years. And now he teaches other people uh, about the cookie cutter. Now, we, we just got another question in. Uh, this is from David, who does not say where he is writing from. Hmm. Um, we have a rule here, David, you have to say, I am from such and so because uh, we are we are heard nationally and sometimes it actually makes a difference where you are from uh, when you're asking a particular question. But um, here's a challenging one for you, Andy. Uh, he says, Andy says, quote, you have to know what to say when making offers. REOs are listed. Do we actually ever get to speak with the bank or the listing agent? And if we don't speak with someone, how do does he best craft craft the offer so that they're accepted at a discount? And that, that's a good point, Andy. You know, most people are used to the process of, well, heck, half the banks now they make you upload your offer. You don't even you don't even like get to talk to a human being ever, not even to say I don't understand how to upload my offer. Right. Well, there's an easy answer to that question, and it's a really good question. So, the types of banks that we buy from directly are types of banks where you can get a, a live human being with a pulse on the phone because we buy from smaller lenders, okay, uh, local and regional banks. And the larger banks, you're not going to get anybody at the bank on the phone. We don't, as I said earlier, we don't buy from these banks directly. We buy through their REO agents. And of course you can get these real estate agents on the phone. So. We have uploaded our offers sometimes, but only when working with an REO agent for a larger uh, bank. And the relationships that I keep emphasizing that we develop with these sellers for the larger banks, they're not with the bank directly, but with the REO agent. So hope that answers the question. Uh, there's all, I, I don't think I've ever bought a property where I didn't have a in-depth phone call with either the bank's key contact or the REO agent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is a little bit different than the strategy of downloading the 919 REO properties that are in the MLS and just throwing offers at the wall to see what sticks. Yeah. Well, one of the things I talk about in my workshops, and I'm a really big believer in this, is that, uh, and I don't, I'll explain what I mean after I make the statement. I'm the laziest investor you'll ever meet. What do I mean by that? And I'm, I'm not a lazy person, but... Um, the ratio of accepted offers uh, to offers is probably anywhere between one in four and one in three. And it's probably one of the highest ratios you will have. Why Why is this, my ratio, this ratio so high? Because I talk to the bank, key contact, before I get in my car, I introduce myself, I establish I'm an investor, and I'm seeking an investor discount. I basically say, if I give you a reasonable offer, is there a chance I can have this before you list it? They're going to say yes, or they're going to say no. If they say yes, I get in my car. So I absolutely do not, passionately do not believe in making blind, uh, low probability offers. 
you're going to the average investor who does this will give up on investing. And it won't give, it'll give up on investing for the wrong reasons, not because real estate investing can't make you wealthy, but because your strategy stinks. <laughs> it involves way too much work, way too much time. And it's a lot easier to pick 20, 25 properties to follow per month, um, call these banks, and establish four or five or six of them where you have actually a reasonable opportunity, and then buy one or two. That's what I do. That's what my students do. It's not more complicated than that. I don't <laughs> believe in going online and making a bunch of low probability offers on properties that you've never seen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bill from South Orange, New Jersey, said, uh, has this question for you, Andy. He wants to know how much work the properties that you buy typically need. Are these junkers that you are completely rehabbing, or are they lighter rehabs, or are you not doing any work at all and letting the lease option buyer do the work? Great question. It's everything, everything you said <laughs> and everything in between. Um, I buy based on deals. If I see a margin on a property that doesn't need a lot of work, I'll buy it. If I see a, a, a larger margin on a property needing a lot of work, I'll buy that too. I draw the line at um, uh, structural issues. Uh, I'm not a home builder. I'm a home rehabber, and I'm really good at it. I know what I need to do. But if you find, if I find a real big and significant structural issue, I don't mess with that. So um, I have found, though, Bill, that the properties that need more work um, tend to be more attractive deals. So I've got a team in place. That's one of the things any successful investor will have after a few months in the business. You'll have a good heat and air person, a good general contractor, a a couple of good painters, a good roofer, roofer or two, a good gutter person. So, and when you have that, you buy these properties, and just you make your phone calls, and they, they do the work for you. So uh, as you start investing, I would say give yourself one, two, or three properties. By the end of that, you'll have yourself pretty, a pretty effective team of um, tradespeople that you can call when you buy these properties that do need a lot of rehab. But don't be scared of that because properties that do need rehab tend to offer a, a really a wonderful return. Very good. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing, talking today to Andy Heller, who is a um, an expert in a particular cookie-cutter system that he himself has developed. We're discussing today the process of purchasing bank-owned properties and uh, certainly taking your calls and questions at 877-772-9658, or you can go to our website and ask your question at askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today, Andy Heller. Andy's going to be in Ohio several times over the next few weeks. So if, if weeks and months, I should say. So if you are going to be, you should uh, check that out. Uh, also, you can give us a call with any questions that you might have at 877-772-9658. Or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Or you can go to askvina.com. We have a question here from Shannon in Batavia, Ohio. Shannon says, I understand that we're talking about buying the bank-owned properties, but I'm very curious about how successful Andy is being in getting his lease option tenants refinanced. My experience is they typically won't do what they need to do in order to improve their credit to the point to even get an FHA loan, and they end up either staying over as tenants or moving out within two to three years. Whoa, we got some people. Andy, they're just just like taking aim at you, aren't they? 
Well, these are wonderful <laughs> questions, and these are questions, honestly, Dina, that I get in, in some of my seminars. So, okay, let's take that question. First of all, um, I don't lease option junk. A lot of the investors who have had challenges with lease options, they take a low-end property and they try to lease option it because they heard it's a great strategy. Well, the second part of what they heard is correct. It is a great strategy, but there is a type of property that makes for an effective lease option. It's a middle-income home. A tenant has to have that desire for home ownership, and that is prevalent in middle-income society. It's not prevalent in the lower end of society, and the higher end of society, most of them are already homeowners. So the first area I find where investors haven't had a lot of success is they end up trying to lease purchase the wrong types of homes. Some of them have structured their lease option so they're not really attractive. They don't really attract high-caliber tenants, and other investors have a poor tenant selection criteria, and they're not putting the tenants in. And the lease option won't cure that, everybody. If you are not putting the right people in your home, I don't care whether you're renting or lease option, you're going to have a vacancy and probably a costly one. But if you are using the right type of property, you structure your lease option correctly. We call it our rent smart lease option. Um, like, for example, we offer a three-year lease option term where your typical investor does a significantly significant amount less than that, we give the tenant a really a reasonable chance to buy. They look at our terms and say, this guy's terms, they're better than everybody else. I'm gonna want I'm gonna want to go and see their home. So the terms we find allow you to attract a higher caliber tenant if the terms are attractive. Then you gotta make sure you pick the right one in the first place. So there's a number of reasons why it may not work. At some point, you're doing the wrong type of property and or you're just putting the wrong people in your homes. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the other part of the lease option is that, at least we recommend, do not get involved in helping tenants fix their credit. The best advice you can give as a landlord is to tell the tenant to call the, the um the consumer, uh, one of those government agencies that's flipping my mind right now, but it's, uh, they'll help you fix your credit. They'll do it for free, and they're experts. Okay? There's also a danger in getting too close to your tenants. All right? So I'm not one of the uh, investors who believes it's in the landlord's interest to get intimately involved in credit repair. Point them where they need to go. Give them a great lease purchase. Uh, structure, give them a good home, and back off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, if you have questions for Andy Heller, you've got about uh, five, ten more minutes to get them in. 877-772-9658 if you'd like to call in a question. If you would like to um, email, you can go to askvina.com and you can simply click the button that says Ask Vina a Question. Hit send and it will show up here in my inbox, hopefully before the end of the show. It very commonly happens that somebody thinks of a question in the last three minutes of the show and I get it you know, after I'm already gone and, and Andy's already gone and there's nobody around to uh, answer the questions anymore. Now, Andy, um, the article that you wrote for us for the uh, Inner Circle e-letter today or the, um, the radio show e-letter uh-huh. today, uh, very, very interesting article about the pricing of these properties and how big a discount one should be looking for 
beyond just the the, the quote normal formula. <laughs> there's you know every, everyone's got yeah. every. It's funny there's a, everyone's got a different normal formula, but it it generally goes something like after repaired value times 0.7 minus repair costs or or something of that nature. When when you are going to these banks with these offers, there's two or three other things that you're taking into account in deciding how much of a discount that you need. For the folks who missed the article, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and this next two minutes won't do the system justice. Uh, I will spend about an hour of the workshop in Columbus on this. We talk about uh, calculating the right investor discount, and there's four components to an investor discount. One is the minimum investor discount, and that is the discount or profit you need if a property is in perfect condition. You as an investor need to understand what that number is, or you're going to end up overpaying. Then there's three additional items by or, or facts specific to the property that we feel justify an additional discount. One is um, how much repairs and improvements the property needs. Number two is uh, the, how long the property's been on the market. The longer it's been on the market, the more desperate the seller should be, whether it's a bank or an individual. You as an investor should take advantage of that. And the third is what we call negative property attributes. Many of these properties that you're looking to buy have flaws that you can't fix with carpet and paint, flaws that can't be fixed with cosmetics. A great example of being is we bought a property a while ago, and... It was in a subdivision that was kind of, the whole subdivision was elevated on a hill, I'd say 20, with a 20-degree elevation. But this one home that we bought had literally a 30 to 35-degree slope upwards. It was like the, you know, the Adams Family House. It was crazy. <laughs> um, you almost had to get a ladder to get in the front door. It was, it was unbelievable. Now this, and it was a real eyesore. And I would watch, and we made appointments after we bought the home, and I would go up, and I'd be sitting up in the kitchen looking down the street, and I would watch it. It was literally Half of the cars that came up to, and they had appointments, these people had appointments to come and see the home, half of them drove off without even <laughs> getting out of their car because they were so turned off by this. This is what is a negative property attribute. You can't fix it. Now, my point, Vina, is that we love properties like this because a good lease option structure, good terms, overcomes these flaws. But you need to understand as an investor how to look at the property and say, okay, Based on this flaw that I'm seeing, I'm going to lose maybe 30% of my potential buyers or my potential renters or my potential lease purchasers. So because of that, I'm going to use this fact to get an extra 10% discount. This is what we teach, and it's a great concept because this, these will be challenges that you will have as an investor if you buy this home and your margin didn't allow for that. But there are opportunities for you to make more money. Because when you basically scare the buyer, the seller, like, man, you better take my offer because that home is such a big detail. Who the heck else is going to pay this kind of money for it? So it gives you a chance as an investor to squeeze an extra $1,000 here, $4,000 there from the seller because they think, well, you know, this, this is a pretty big issue. I better go ahead and take Andy's offer or Vina's offer or Bill's offer. Otherwise, I might be stuck with this property in a month. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And things like the the negative property conditions, they truly do affect the desirability of your property. But what's what 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 one what one discovers as one is more and more in the real estate business is a lot of the properties that that we are offered as investors 
they they just have those property conditions. That's just the way it is. It, we 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 all want the perfect you know three bedroom two bath two car garage on a slab uh, that you know that every other homeowner on the planet wants. And the reality is sometimes you get properties with a thirty degree slope, and if you ignore them, they're not a lot left. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. And not, what I teach in my, in my seminars, you need to learn to love the ugly and awful. Because the ugly and awful properties represent more green, more money. And if you're an investor, that, oh, I don't want anything with, you got to work on or anything with these steep hills or whatever, you're not going to make as much money. Simple as that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very, very true. So... Andy, if if uh, you you've been doing this a long time, as you as you mentioned earlier, even though you you did start as a person with a full time job and did this for many years with a full time uh-huh. job, if if there if there was someone out there in listener land who was thinking, well, that's that's great that Andy can get on the phone with local and regional banks and get them to tell him over the phone what they'll take, but I'm brand new. I don't I don't have those connections. I don't you know do do, do I have any chance of doing this? strategy, what would you say to them? Oh, I would say being a seasoned investor can even hurt you because you think you're smart. You think you know everything. You get on the phone and and the banks don't care if you've done it 30 years or 25 years. One of the most powerful parts of my workshop when I teach Vina is when I actually read a a sample script that I use when I call the banks. And some of the most seasoned, and there's always two or three seasoned investors in any workshop I do and say, hey, I tried it, it didn't work. And then when I read my script and we go back and we analyze it together, like, oh, my goodness, I get it. I understand why it didn't work for me. So what I say to all those present, and I'll say the same thing now on the phone here, is that you have absolutely no advantage at all if you're a seasoned or inexperienced investor. You just need to know how to approach these banks, the system for doing it, and you need to say the right thing. If you're able to come to my workshop, I will teach you exactly what to say when you make the call to the bank. But um, absolutely positively, Vina, I will say so I'm blue. If you're just getting started in real estate, there may be no easier way to buy than buying from banks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and let me add to that: don't be intimidated. I, I find that a lot of a lot of uh, particularly new investors and and even more experienced investors get very intimidated about the idea of talking to banks because they believe that the banker knows a whole lot more than they do about real estate. And my experience is the banker knows about banking. And you oh, I, you, you, know, you typically know more about real estate than the banker does, even though it's, quote, their property, right? Yeah. You know, it, your, your comment, I hope I have time for a really funny 45, 50-second story that will make everybody laugh. Uh, my real estate partner, Scott, is an attorney, and Vina met him before when she came to Atlanta once. We had lunch together, and um, he's you know, a very conservative attorney, very smart, and one of the first properties we bought, we called this bank, and when you're buying from a smaller bank, people, there's a lot of times there's not an REO person. You're talking to a VP or a mortgage person. In this case, we're actually talking to the bank president, and so Scott explained, I'm an attorney, and we're making this offer, and the president of the bank said, I mean, you're going to laugh at this, Vina. It sounds funny, and it is funny, but this actually happened. He said, so what am I supposed to do now? Am I supposed to accept your offer and sell you the property? 
And uh, Scott basically went through his typical, well, you know, I'm, I'm buying this as an investor. As an attorney, I can't give you this advice. You know? <laughs> and if anybody's ever seen The Life of Brian, this is where you say, you got to haggle now. you got to argue. Say, okay, now, now, okay, how? That's a crazy offer. How about increasing that? But he was asking us if he should accept. So at the end of the you know, isn't that crazy, Mina? That, no, I, I totally 100% believe it. And, and I've, I've had similar experiences myself. The first time I said to a local bank, so now that we're in agreement, do you have a purchase agreement you would like me to sign? And they say they, they said, uh, no, do you have one? <laughs> I was just, mm-hmm. I was floored because, of course, all the big banks have, yep. have their agreements that are, you know, God help you if you try to edit them at all. And uh, a lot of these uh, smaller local banks are just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, it's a, it is a much more relaxed experience. And we look forward to hearing a whole lot more about it coming up in Columbus on September the 3rd and at Oria on November the 8th, 9th, and 10th. Thank you so much, Andy Heller, for sharing your years of experience in buying bank-owned properties with us. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.